0: So for the sermon today, we're picking up where we left off. I'll kind of give us a little bit of a refresher, the sermon series that we're in. Uh, We've been looking at Israelite kings, right? And we looked at uh, Solomon, and then we took a look at his son, Rehoboam. Uh, And now we're going to be taking a look at Jeroboam. And so you can even already be opening up your Bibles and the bulletin there, the the scripture verses. We're going to be in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, 2 Chronicles. But first, we're going to be in 1 Kings. So you can be flipping there to chapter 14. But we're going to be looking at at Jeroboam, and we sort of already talked, you may remember last week, a little bit about Jeroboam. We focused on Rehoboam, uh, but Jeroboam sort of shows up in the story of Rehoboam, Uh, and I'll kind of like recap this, give a quick little summary to, to freshen our minds a little bit, but... So you have Solomon. At that time, under Solomon, the kingdom was united, so it wasn't separated into the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the southern kingdom of Judah was all united as, as one nation, all of the tribes of, of Israel. Uh, but then ultimately what wound up happening, we talked about this last week, we have Rehoboam, and and he was uh, awfully foolish in his leadership. He was a poor leader. Uh, and ultimately, I'm kind of giving the quick version of this, but ultimately what wound up coming to pass uh, is that the the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, so all other than Judah in the south, and Judah was the main one. Benjamin, also sort of in the south, is kind of an add-on to Judah. All of the remaining ten tribes, other than Judah and Benjamin, wound up breaking off and saying, you know what, forget you, Judah and, and Davidic kings. We're done with you guys. We're going to go and start our own nation. We're going to start our own kingdom, which became known as the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in the south, the Davidic kings there winds up being just Judah and Benjamin. And so we have, this happens all under Rehoboam, and he winds up being the king, it it sort of starts very briefly as a united kingdom, but, but almost instantly it all falls apart, and he winds up king over the southern kingdom of Judah, those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But now, who winds up becoming king of the the first king of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel? The first king winds up being Jeroboam, and so he's the one we're going to take a look at today. Uh, And we've been, as we've we've been going through this series, looking at Israelite kings, what we've been doing is we see their their stories as recorded here uh, in Scripture. We're sort of drawing out lessons, saying, you know, what can we learn from these Israelite kings? What lessons can we learn from their lives? And so, as we take a look at Jeroboam, we're going to say, well, what can we as God's people learn from Jeroboam? What lessons can we draw from his life? And I'll kind of tell you already up front where we're going to be going with this. But the, the fundamental thing that we see in Jeroboam's life, and you could see this in other kings throughout uh, you know, the history of Israelite kings, whether the northern kingdom or southern kingdom, but we see it certainly in a very stark and clear and profound way in Jeroboam's life the reality that God punishes sin. Right? And that's sort of not a, a desirable topic for people to talk about if we think of our culture today. People don't, in our world, in our culture, don't want to talk about, oh, sin. It's just sort of, it's unpleasant. It's sticky. We don't want to talk about that. Uh, or or punishment. No, we don't like that idea of punishment. It's unpleasant. Uh, it's not what we want to hear about. That's sort of the mindset of the culture all around us. And all too often, that, that tends to filter into the church as well. And there are churches out there, you know, where it, it's sadly the case, but where they would say, And they'd be even open about it. Oh we don't we don't really talk about sin, we don't talk about punishment those are sort of unpleasant things. And even though God's Word uh, addresses it and addresses it all over the place, people just don't want to hear those things. So we just want to talk about all the stuff in Scripture that's sort of all warm and fuzzy and uplifting and pleasant. And certainly those wonderful, warm, fuzzy, pleasant things are important to talk about. But we also have to certainly be talking about the the whole truth of God's Word and all that He proclaims, all that Scripture says. And part of that is the reality that there is sin and that God does punish sin. And and I even think of those churches that sort of don't want to talk about these unpleasant things that, that aren't maybe encouraging to hear about, but nonetheless are a reality. You know, if you're not going to talk about sin and you're not going to talk about the reality that God punishes sin, well then how do you really even talk about the gospel? Right? Before the good news comes, in a sense, is the reality of the foundation of that, which is the bad news, right? The, the bad news sort of sets the stage for the good news. If we don't understand the reality of, of sin and that that separates us from God and that God is a God who punishes sin, and so because of sin, going all the way back to Adam and Eve and that first act of, of rebellion toward the Lord, understanding that and that that sin, right? God is a just God and he's, he's holy and he's righteous, and what does he do? He punishes sin, he punishes rebellion. Against him, he punishes sin, and because of that, we're separated from God, we're justly under his wrath. If you don't teach that, even though that's clearly taught in scripture, well, then how do you teach the gospel, right? The gospel really builds on that. If you don't talk about sin and punishment, well, then where is there even a need for a savior, right? In a sense, it doesn't make sense if you don't set the stage for Christ and what he has done, that even while we were in our sins, stuck in it under the wrath of God, yet because God is gracious and loving. He, he sent his son to go and take our place, our sin, right? He died on a cross, made atonement for sin so that uh, wondrously through through repentance and faith in him, we might be forgiven, have everlasting life. If we don't set the stage with the reality of there is sin and God punishes it, then sort of the whole foundation of the good news of the gospel, it sort of makes no sense, right? If there isn't sin and punishment, then why do we need a savior? Why do we need what Christ did? And so it's tragic that, that this is sort of the way of the world and even in the way that, that many churches are buying into, uh, to say people don't really like hearing about sin, they don't like hearing about punishment, right? I don't think any of us really love that topic, like it's so uplifting and wonderful, but nonetheless it's a part of God's Word, it is important truth, and it must be proclaimed and so I want to talk about that here, even if it's not the most encouraging, uplifting topic, it is an important topic in the reality of it. And so we're going to look at Jeroboam's life here and we're going to see play out very clearly this reality of sin and that God punishes sin. And... What we're really going to focus on, I know I sort of mentioned this already a little bit, uh, talking about, of course, you know, sin and it separates us from God and we're under the wrath of God, but what Christ has done for us. I'm going to be focusing on sin and that God punishes sin more, not so much in the eternal sense of because of our sin, we're separated from God under his wrath, but then we know what Christ has done for us. But sort of talking about sin and God punishing it, I'm going to be focusing a little bit more since this is what we see, out, see play out particularly clearly in Jeroboam's life is the reality that God punishes sin not just sort of in an eternal way, but he also punishes it uh, even in our lives in in this life as well. As we sin, as we rebel against God, and this goes for believers or unbelievers, but it's true even for those of us who are saved who belong to the Lord, that even when we stray and we wind up sinning in our lives, that God does punish sin in this life. And so we're really going to focus on that sense of sin and God's punishment rather than sort of the eternal perspective, but rather that God even punishes sin right here, right now, In this life. So, we're going to turn looking at Jeroboam to 1 Kings chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 1 through 20. So, let me read this for us. So, at that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah, Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age, but the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill, and you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, "'Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why this pretense? "'I have been sent to you with bad news. "'Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, "'the God of Israel, says.'" I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. So just sort of to recap, what has Jeroboam done? Right? He has forsaken the Lord. Instead of serving him and him only, he's gone after all the, the false pagan gods of, of the Canaanite peoples, the people all around Israel. He's gone after their false pagan gods. And not just has he done this and done evil, but he has also encouraged the whole of the northern kingdom, right? all of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, he has encouraged them to join him in this evil of following after and worshiping other false deities and making idols and bowing down and worshiping them. So he has sinned, he has sinned greatly, and he has encouraged the rest of the people over whom he is leader, he has encouraged them to join him in this evil as well. And so God says, okay, you've sinned and you've sinned in a great way, well now what are the consequences? And we're going to see it's punishment, right? Jeroboam sins, and what comes from that? God punishes sin. This is the principle we see at work in Jeroboam's life. So reading on, verse 10, because of this, right, because of what you've done, because of this evil, because of this sin, how you've gone after and worshipped other gods and, and led the people of Israel in this, because of this, he says, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam, who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. Right, so what is he saying? He's saying, you're you're lying, Your descendants, right? They're going to be annihilated. They will be done away with. This is your punishment, Jeroboam. You've done evil. You've rebelled against me. You've gone after other gods. You've led the whole people of Israel, the northern kingdom. You've led them in this evil and rebellion. And God says, "You've, you've sinned. And I punish sin, right? That's what God's saying. Here is your punishment for your sin. He's saying, right, your whole line, all of your heirs, all of your descendants, they will be wiped out. They will be killed. Your lineage will be no more. That's what he's saying right? And that's a harsh punishment in any age, in any era. If we were to sort of put that in light of our cultural context here, we'd say, oh, that, that's pretty severe punishment. If you think of sort of all of your descendants, your heritage, your line, it's just going to be cut off. They'll be put to death, eliminated. But you have to think of this in ancient Near Eastern terms, and it's all the more severe. Your, your lineage and heritage and descendants was, was awfully important, was hugely significant. And if you think of his role as king, too, this sort of uh, even an added significance to it. He was to be king, right? His descendants would have been king after him. Now, one of his sons does wind up briefly reigning on the throne uh, for a couple years until that's ended and the whole line is, is annihilated and eliminated. But he was king, and, and his descendants were to, would have been, have been reigning on that throne of the northern kingdom of Israel had he been faithful. And so even this, this idea of sort of lineage and descendants would have been all the more significant, not just in an ancient Near Eastern context, but especially as king. Right? and So this was a hugely severe punishment. God says, you sinned against me, you sinned against me greatly. Well, I'm, I'm God, I punish sin, and here is your punishment. But it doesn't end there, and we're going to read on and we'll see a little bit more. So verse 12, as for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. And looking at this, you could say, well, is this is this a punishment or not, right? Certainly as we think of the, the descendants, the, the whole household of Jeroboam being cut off, uh, sort of wiped off the face of the earth, annihilated, ended, uh, that was very clearly identified as punishment for sin. This is, is not so clear. You could look at it and say, well, here's, you know, Ahijah, and, and he's uh, giving this, this prophecy, here's the punishment from the Lord uh, for Jeroboam and his sin, and how he's got all of Israel joining him in the sin. But then, oh, let me get back. Back to the main point that you came here about your boy and will he recover or will he die? And so he sort of gets back to the the point Uh, and and addresses that. Uh, And so is this punishment, is it not? I'd say it's sort of multiple things. I think there's the reality of, of, well, this boy falls ill and and ultimately winds up dying. Uh, Part of that's just the reality of a broken, fallen world and going back to Adam and Eve and that initial act of rebellion and just sort of all of the fallout from that and people get sick and, and they die and it doesn't have to be sort of targeted punishment because of some sort of specific sin in that person's life. And so I think some of it is that that's going on, but I'd say it's also intentional that it happens to be taking place in Jeroboam's family, it happens to be his son, and it happens to be taking place right at this moment, that I would say even as sort of the natural consequences of sin going back to Adam and Eve playing out, as they play out in this specific scenario, God also intends for it to be sort of an added loss in Jeroboam's life and sort of a little added punishment as well. And yet at the same time, even as it's serving as punishment, I'd say as strange as it might sound, it's also a a bit of an act of mercy on the part of God toward this, this boy, this young boy, as you think about, well, what would have happened to him, right? What was going to happen to the whole household of Jeroboam? They were all going to be put to death, but in a particularly horrible and brutal way is sort of a new king takes over and the natural thing if you're sort of this this new king from a different line that takes over the throne you're going to want to get rid of any potential heir who would have any sort of claim to the throne so anyone from the prior family or dynasty you'd want to wipe them out and it would sort of be a brutal act and so in a sense this is a sort of act of mercy on God's part as he even says right he is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord the God of Israel has found anything good. Now, we don't know the degree of faithfulness in this boy to to the Lord. It could just be that there's some sort of some degree of sort of acknowledgement of God and, and regard for the Lord, or it could be particularly significant faithfulness to him. We don't know, but, but there's some degree of regard for the Lord more than any others in this household. And it, so instead of this boy being caught up in, in ultimately this punishment that's to come of the whole line, the whole household of Jeroboam uh, being wiped out, right, as part of this punishment, and they're going to die in a pretty awful way. As he says, dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country. So there's a particularly harsh death and punishment here. He sort of spares this boy who at least has some sort of regard for the Lord from that, even though it's through an unusual way of allowing him to die before this, but he will actually receive sort of an honorable and proper burial and won't be caught up in sort of that that judgment that God is going to bring uh, down the road uh, some years later. And so, in some sense, as bizarre as it might sound, while it's sort of punishment for Jeroboam on the one hand, it's also, in a sense, a sort of act of mercy sparing this boy from what would ultimately come upon him if he had stayed alive, it would have come upon and ultimately does come upon the rest of the household of Jeroboam. And so I would say there is some aspect of punishment in that. So not only will the whole household of Jeroboam wind up being killed, right, and and ended, his lineage done, but even at this moment, the boy will die, which is a sort of punishment on some level uh, for Jeroboam and all that he's done. But the punishment doesn't end there. If we continue on, verse 14 It says, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now, this is beginning to happen, and the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Now what is he speaking of? He's speaking of what's going to take place roughly to give a ballpark timetable about 200 years after Jeroboam's day and age uh, as we're sort of looking at this context and, and Jeroboam being alive. This is still 200 years later but ultimately what he's speaking of is the Assyrians coming and wiping out uh, of the whole northern kingdom of Israel. They're sort of wiped off the map off the face of the earth, earth with permanence. It's not like, oh they'll be restored and come back and be a nation again. No, they are just wiped out with finality and taken away into exile. That's what he's talking about. And why is this going to come about? Because of the sins of Jeroboam. Because he did evil, and not only that, he caused Israel, he led the rest of Israel in committing that same evil as well. And of course, generation after generation, they continued in that evil and rebellion. Jeroboam sort of set the stage for it and, and sort of started them in that path of evil. And they continued generation after generation until 200 years later, the Lord said, enough is enough. And sent them away into exile with finality, wiping out the northern kingdom again with finality. And again, this all comes back to Jeroboam and his act of evil. Right? God says, "You've sinned against me. You've gone after other gods, and not only that, you've led the people of Israel in the same evil. And so I'm going to punish you." God says that that's who I am. I am a God who punishes sin, and so I'm going to punish you by by wiping out your family line. But not only that, all of Israel that has joined you in this evil. The whole of this kingdom will be punished and will be taken away into exile with finality. And then it reads on, verse 17, Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Tirzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars, and how he ruled are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel, he reigned for 22 years and then rested with his ancestors and Nadab his son succeeded him as king. So again, coming back to this this principle that we see very clearly in Jeroboam's life is the reality that God punishes sin. We see Jeroboam's great sin and and God doesn't just say, "Eh, you know, sin, it's no big deal. I don't want to deal with it. I'll just sort of sweep it under the rug. No, God says sin is a big deal. And what does God do? He punishes sin and he punishes the sin of Jeroboam in a great way. And I want us to look at ultimately the fulfillment of this, not just to say, oh, here's a prophet saying this will come to pass, but to really look and and see, in fact, that God did ultimately carry out these punishments that he said he would. And so we're going to turn to the next chapter. So this is still 1 Kings, but now chapter 15, looking at verses 25 through to 32. And here's what it says. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Baasha, son of Ahijah, from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Baasha killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. As for the other events of Nadab's reign and all he did, Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Bashar, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Right, so God ultimately fulfilled what He promised and said He would do. Jeroboam did evil. God said, "I'm going to punish it," and sure enough, He did. He carried that out. He wiped out the whole family, the whole line. And this was sort of typical practice. Again, you sort of have a new dynasty, uh, a new guy coming over, usurping the throne. And what is he going to do? Well, sort of to secure the throne, he's going to want to get rid of anyone who might have any sort of claim to the throne. So all of the heirs, particularly the male heirs, right, the, the descendants, he's going to want to wipe them out so that they would have no more claim and sort of secure cure the throne. That's what bashad does. And of course, Jeroboam's whole line, his lineage, his descendants are done away with, just as the Lord foretold. But now I want to look at, at the other part of, of the punishment that was foretold, that all of Israel, this whole northern kingdom, would just be sort of wiped out, utterly devastated, carried away into exile again with finality. And we see this come to fruition. Again, it's 200 years later after Jeroboam's time, but nonetheless comes to fruition. And we see this in Second Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 23. And let me read it for us. Says in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt. And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, in Gozan, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. Certainly, Jeroboam notably introducing that. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right, From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, Do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And again, Benjamin with Judah. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Meaning, as of the time of the writing here of 1 Kings, they're still there in exile is what's being spoken of there. But again, what do we see here? We see this, this prophetic word the Lord has brought coming to fruition here, Right? Uh, it was prophesied, hey, Jeroboam, you've done evil. You've sinned against me, and here's the consequence. I punish sin, and here's the punishment that's going to come upon you, and not just upon you, but all of Israel. Uh, you've chosen to forsake me and go after other gods, and you've led all of Israel in this rebellion, and they've joined you in this sin, forsaking me, going after foreign gods, false gods. And he says, here's the punishment, right? Ultimately, even though it's two years, 200 years down the road, he says, I'm going to wipe this whole kingdom off the face of the earth. I'm going to utterly devastate it and the people will be taken away with finality into exile, and that is the punishment that is brought upon the people of Israel, again, because of Jeroboam's sin, but not just his, but his enticing the Israelites in his day, but also then enticing in an enduring way the generations to come afterward through all of the northern kingdom's history, enticing them to go after false gods and do evil, to sin against the Lord in that way. And so again, as we look at it, we, we see very clearly this principle that God punishes sin. Again, it's not something that sort of we love to talk about, and it's so encouraging, right? These are sort of harsh words, but it is a reality, and the truth of God's Word needs to be proclaimed and and spoken forth and and shown to be as it is, right? The truth must be spoken, and this is the reality, right? That there is sin in the world and that God fiercely punishes sin. He is a God who punishes sin, right? He is holy. He is righteous. He's just. He's not just going to let it go unaddressed and say sin's no big deal, but no, God fiercely punishes sin, And that's a reality. And I'd say this is a message that our world desperately needs to hear. I'd say throughout all of the history of the world, the world desperately needs to hear. But I think of even particularly sort of the times that we're going through. I would say we are living in a country that is seemingly ever increasingly straying from the Lord, Right? You just sort of look at our world and sort of Christianity, Christian values just seem to be marginalized, and ever increasingly our country seems not only to want to live in sin, but to even in a sense go further and want to celebrate it, as though it's so wonderful and delightful. Uh, as we slaughter unborn children, not only do we do that, but we sort of celebrate it as this wonderful women's rights issue while we're putting children, unborn children, to death. And so we see the evil in our country straying from the Lord, whether it's homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever it might be, heterosexual sexual sin, right? Fornication or adultery or pornography or you name it, whether it's materialism, we seem in every way to be just sort of straying from the Lord our country and saying, hey... We don't want want God. We don't want his values. We don't want what's right. We just want to indulge in sin. Whatever seems right to us, whatever is right in our own eyes, we want to do that, and it is sin, and it is great sin against the Lord, and that seems to be the way of our country, and I'd say not only for our country, but as I look at the American church as a whole, not that I think that this characterizes New Hope Chapel, but I even think of the American church as a whole, and I say all too often that seems to be the case for the American church as well, whether it's from a leadership perspective, and this is something I even talked about at the beginning of the sermon where for some reason the the truth of God's word seems to be ever increasingly watered down. It's sort of the unpleasant things. Well, we don't want to talk about that. You know, we just want to be motivational speakers as pastors. That's sort of the new wave of things that sort of will tell people what they want to hear and and sort of what's warm and fuzzy and, and encouraging rather than proclaiming the truth of God's Word. And so even from a leadership perspective in the church, we see sort of a straying from the Lord. Uh, but not only that, even if we just sort of uh, try to take the pulse of the American church, if you're going to be honest and you look at things, as you sort of address issues of sin in the church, the reality is the church doesn't really look all that different from the world around it if you look at matters of divorce or, or sexual sin adultery materialism again you sort of pick the sin what, whatever it is if you pick it the reality is if you do all the, the polls and there are all sorts of you know well done polls barn and group you name it and, and you know They've done the research, and the reality is that even within the evangelical church, the numbers look awfully similar as compared to the world around us. And so as you look at the, the American church, the reality is we don't seem to want to be living in a countercultural way, saying, no, we're we're sold out for the Lord. We're sold out for Christ. We're going to be living for Him, right? We're going to be forsaking our sin, turning from it, and living obediently in service to God and service to Christ, honoring Him, glorifying Him in every moment of our lives. That doesn't seem to be sort of the mindset and the heart attitude of the American church. Instead, it's sort of, we look at the world around us and say, ooh, that that sin looks fun. That looks pleasurable. I'd like to do some of that too. And we seem to be straying ever increasingly from the Lord and and indulging in sin. And so, I'd say this message that we learn from Jeroboam's life is of utmost importance, the reality that God punishes sin. And and I'd say even that we're probably, not that I have the mind of God and, and know His every will, right, but as I sort of look at things, as I see our country straying from the Lord, as I see the church sort of Straying from the Lord a bit as well. Uh, and then I look at the times we're in, and we have a pandemic, and the economy is struggling. People are out of work. Things are tough. We have all sorts of division within our nation, seemingly over everything, but certainly, particularly recently, stemming from racial issues. And it's just, you look at our country, nothing seems to be going well. We don't seem to be flourishing, but rather we're sort of floundering about as a country. And I would say, well, this is punishment, right? We've forsaken the Lord, we've forsaken his ways, and God says, I'm a God who punishes sin, and we've sinned. And I'd say that this is very likely punishment from the Lord upon our country, but I'd say also probably upon the church in this country as well. We also aren't being particularly faithful to the church. Again, I think New Hope Chapel is an awful lot better than this, so I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting New Hope Chapel specifically. But again, sort of looking at the, the whole national church, I'd say it's not like we're sold out for the Lord, and, and that these consequences that are coming, upon our country is not just our country around us, but including the church as well as we have ever increasingly seemingly forsaken the Lord in His ways. And so we need to learn from this, recognize this is, this is who God is, right? He is a God who punishes sin. He punishes it fiercely. And as we think of, well, okay, so we can understand this, but, but where do we go from here, right? Well, first of all, I want to say as we understand this reality, as we learn from Jeroboam, God's a God who punishes sin, and we ought to take that seriously. First of all, that ought to be a deterrent from living in further sin, now, now, our chief motivation for steering clear of sin and living obediently and faithfully unto the Lord, living godly lives, shouldn't be just a, oh, I don't want punishment. The chief motivation should be, I love the Lord. He's everything to me. I I just, out of love for him, I just want to live obediently. I don't want to disobey him. I love him and I want to serve him and honor him. That should be our chief motivation. But there is also this added sense in which if we understand the reality that God punishes sin, that's who he is, that's how he operates, that sort of added motivation to steer clear of sin and say, "I, I don't want to fall under punishment from God. And that's added motivation to say, I need to steer clear of sin in my life Right? I need to steer clear of it and live faithfully and obediently unto the Lord. But the reality is, perhaps we're already, whether as individuals, because this principle holds true, whether you're talking about individuals, whether you're talking about some sort of community, whether it's a local church, whether it's the American church, whether it's a country, this principle of God punishing sin, it's not just one or the other. It holds true whether you're talking individuals or some sort of community group as well, that God punishes sin. As we think about this and say, well, what if we're already steeped in sin? And the truth is, we're all sinful, myself included. We all have sin in our lives. But what if maybe you know not just looking at the understanding this we ought to steer clear of sin, but what if there's already sin in my life, particularly significant sin in my life, uh, well, what then? And I'd say, well, there are two possibilities in regard to how things might look in your life if you're living in some sort of significant sin. It's possible that punishment hasn't yet come, that maybe God is being patient and gracious with you and saying, I'm giving you an opportunity to repent, to turn from from this sin in your life, uh, turn toward me, repent of it, and then I won't punish and I'll be gracious. I'd say that's a possibility. God may uh, just be being long-suffering and he's bearing with you and being patient and giving you that opportunity. If that's the case then repent of your sinfulness, right? Understand the sin in your life. See it, confess it, acknowledge it, and say, God, I'm done with that repent of it and say, no more. I'm not going to continue to live in this sinful way, but I'm going to live obediently and faithfully in service to you. And Holy Spirit, bring that change in my heart that's needed to really bring that to fruition, that I might be done with this sin and live faithfully in service to you. And if you repent of that sinfulness and return to the Lord, then He's going to be gracious. He's not going to hold that sin against you and bring punishment. Uh, If He's being patient with you, you're going to avoid that punishment. But it's possible that you're involved in some sort of sin, again, whether this is on the individual level or whether we're talking some large community or the whole country. Maybe there's sin in your life, some significant sin, and that punishment has already come, as I sort of mentioned in regard to, I think, our country, in regard to the American church, and sort of the punishment's already here. Then the question is, well, what should our response be? How do we deal with this? And I want to turn to a verse that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Solomon in the sermon series, and it's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And here's what it says. And the whole context of this is sort of if punishment comes upon God's people, then if they do this, right? So if, if God's people are experiencing punishment from the Lord for sin in their lives, then he says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land, Right? And this doesn't just apply to the people of Israel, right? That, hey, if they're steeped in some sort of sin and, and this punishment that comes, and if they just sort of understand that and if they uh, humbly repent and cry out to the Lord for healing, that He'll, he'll, right, he'll forgive them. He won't hold that sin against them. He'll, he'll sort of relieve that punishment. He'll take it away, uh, and He'll bring healing in their land. It's not just for them, but it holds true in our day and age today as well. That, again, applying this to our situation, if we've sinned, whether as individuals, whether as a community, if we've sinned and now what does God do? He punishes sin and we're experiencing that, then what should our response be? It should be a response of humble repentance, acknowledging our sinfulness and say, Lord, we've, we've missed it. Or Lord, I've missed it. I, I, I've sinned against you and I'm broken. I'm heartbroken and mourning over this sin. And I turn from it. I repent of it. I'm done with it. And I just want to live faithfully in service to you. And to cry out to God and say, Lord, bring healing in my life. And if we do that what's God going to do? It says, then he'll hear from heaven. He will forgive their sin and heal their land. So if we're in that situation where we've sinned and God has brought punishment as a result of sin in our lives, we just have to turn humbly in repentance and cry out for healing, and God will do that. And so as I think of our takeaway, again, just sort of to recap as we think of application, I want us to understand this principle, especially in a day and age that doesn't like in our culture, where there's just sort of a dislike in regard to talking about sin and punishment, to understand the reality that God does punish sin and understanding that, for that to be added motivation in our lives as a starting point, just to steer clear of sin and stay away from it and live obediently to the Lord. But if we are trapped in some sort of sin, we're, we're living in some sort of sinful way in our lives as individuals or as a community, to understand that we then need to respond with humble repentance, cry out to the Lord for healing if we do he will relieve that affliction that punishment that he has brought upon us he will bring healing and so that ought to be our response whether as individuals of this sin in our lives whether as the American church whether as the American people and nation to understand sin to recognize it to repent of it and to cry out to God for healing and see him bring wondrous healing in our midst amen and let's pray Lord God, thank you for examples like that of Jeroboam. At times we learn from those who have lived faithfully and we learn from their successes, but at other times we learn from those who have failed and we learn from their failures, Lord, and that is the case here with Jeroboam. He sinned against you and greatly. He went after other gods and he led the whole people of the northern kingdom of Israel in that same sin. And You're a God who punishes sin. It's who You are. It's what You do. And may we not forget that, Lord. You punished Jeroboam fiercely for his sin. And You do so even today in our lives, whether as individuals, whether as a community. And may we not forget that even as we live in the midst of a culture that dislikes any mention of sin or punishment. May we remember You are a God who punishes sin. And may that be motivation for us to steer clear of it, Lord. But certainly having the fundamental motivation to steer clear of sin, just because we love You and we want to live for You and obey You. But as that added bonus motivation, may we understand You punish sin and may we not want to fall under Your punishment. And with that mindset, may we steer clear of sin, stay far away from it, and live faithfully and obediently to You. But may we also remember, Lord, that if there is sin in our lives and if we are experiencing punishment for it, Lord, But that's not the end of the story, but that if we humbly repent and seek healing from you, Lord, you will forgive and bring wondrous healing. And what a glorious gift that is, and we celebrate that, Lord. And whether it's in our lives as individuals or as a collective American church or the whole American people in our nation, Lord, where this sin, may we readily acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, seek healing in you, and may you bring wondrous healing in our midst.